listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. I was muted, now I'm not, so let me try that again. Good morning. Uh, we're grateful that you guys are here joining us this Palm Sunday. For those who are new with us or maybe just visiting, let me bring you up to speed a little bit on the journey that the Lord and the Holy Spirit has been taking us through in the book of Romans. So we've walked through almost five chapters of the book of Romans, and a couple of observations that we've made is the central element of what Paul's getting at as he's communicating to a church that is dealing with very similar things that you and I would be dealing with. Challenges within the context of the church, relational uh, conflict, issues of struggle and frustration, trying to understand the scope of suffering and where God is in the midst of those things. Romans 1.16 is the theme of the entire book. And we memorized it a few weeks ago, but it's, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all of those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the point is, is that Paul is communicating to a church in Rome, a church that he never met, a church that he's communicating to, a church that was started as the gospel began to get a huge impact on the lives of believers, and they were convinced that there's this sense that the, the, the role of Jesus Christ in our lives and the work that Jesus does in and through us calls us to be an influence in the world and calls us to some level of community with one another. And so the interesting part about this church being started and, and growing in a, a, a very secular society that was filled with worshiping tons of other things is that there's an impact that the gospel has and that the church has in a society that has no desire for God or Jesus. I mean, there's a, just a, a simplistic application is that the churches were never planted or usually never planted in places where the church is already thriving, right? The, the church was meant to be in a place where there was a need and a challenge and a confusion about the reality of who God was. So light in darkness. Churches were planted in dark, messy places. Well, that's the world as a whole, but in the context of what Paul is communicating is that the, the gospel has a, a work and a power and an effect in the lives of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and that it's always been about faith and that what he's done for four chapters is to communicate and diagnose the depth and the reality of the problem that we face of all humanity, the issues of sin and, and ultimately what that means is that we're enemies of God. We've been placed in a situation where we're in opposition to the God of the universe. And we live in that opposition by nature and by choice. We make conscious decisions that the authority and the truth of God and his word um, is not something that we want to necessarily abide by or even care that much about. It was, it was God that was pursuing us in the midst of our own challenges and our own struggles. Even what Paul said last week, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Like we were at enmity with God. We were on the opposite playing field. We were at war with the God of the universe. And God saw fit 
through Jesus Christ to move in such a way that what we were once considered enemies could be considered forever family through what Jesus did on the cross. There's a lot of hope that's embedded in what Paul is saying, even as he moves through Romans chapter 5. Last week, Romans 5 began to answer some of the very difficult questions of how we process God in the midst of suffering. I mean, the challenges that you and I face, he, he puts the gospel, which I think it always is, but sometimes we overcomplicate it. He puts the gospel, the truth of the good news of the power of the death, burial, and resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection on street level. It, it moves into our neighborhood. It helps us understand the impact and the power of what it means to have a relationship with Christ, not just for the sake of eternity, but the daily promise of the presence of Jesus Christ at work in our lives and everything we face. Every moment that we need rescue, every moment where our emotions and frustrations about life tend to overshadow our understanding of God, every moment where the wounds that you and I have experienced through this life serve to, to communicate and identify us that that is who we are in our identity, our suffering, our habits, our addictions, our challenges, our anger, our wounds, all of those things that capture the day-to-day -day moments of life. If you think of any place where there's conflict, challenge, and frustration, Romans 5, 1 through 11 was communicating to us that, that God is doing something, not in spite of those very moments, but in those very moments. And Paul was very clear. Here's the thing that happens, right? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope doesn't disappoint. Hope what? Hope that, that our suffering is not our identity, that it's part of our testimony, that we're able to understand that the, the God of grace and the God who is powerfully working on behalf of those who are his is exhibiting and working in ways beyond what we can see so that the very things that seek to define us, the very uh, challenges and hurts and wounds that seek to take over our life and consume our attention begin to be something that grow dismantled because what we're able to see is that there's hope in the gospel that explodes those ideas and allows us intimacy, hope, and strength beyond what we could expect. There's so much joy in Romans 5, 1 through 11, as we just think about our own individual lives and the challenges that you and I face. But Paul makes a shift here, and the shift is unique, I guess, if we would look at it. For me, as I read it, it's also very unexpected. Because what I would suggest that Paul is now going to talk about in verses 12 through 21, the rest of chapter 5, is he's going to take on the conversation about power. Really, the, the sense of kind of authority, he's going to use the term reign a lot, the, the sense of this uh, assertion of what has power over our lives, and he's going to do it from the standpoint of the universal reality of what we can understand and expect. And I think he does it for really addressing one of the most predominant questions that many of us, Christian and non-Christian, face in the context of our lives. If we remember back, we said that Paul wrote the book of Romans for three reasons. Clarify the gospel, unify the church, and prove that God is both righteous and fair in everything he does. I think what he's dealing with in Romans, 12 through 20, Romans 5, 12 through 21, is dealing with the fairness and righteousness of God. 
And the question that I think would bubble up in our own lives as we wrestle with those things, as we look at the catastrophic human suffering around the world, even in our own lives, and like I was just looking at the statistics, 84 mass shootings in 2023, the three months already, we look at those things and we've already seen that everybody that you end up talking to that has some level of influence is saying, I know the problem. <laughs> And they come up with a whole host of solutions as to why these things are happening. And a lot of times it's grasping. Maybe they're touching on some components and some struggles and some challenges. But the fullness of really answering that question, I have yet to hear from anyone in the world at all. Paul's going to answer that question this morning. Why? Why do those things happen? But he's not going to leave it just in terms of looking at the global catastrophic human suffering in the world. He's going to move it back into the neighborhoods of our souls. And the question is, is why the relational brokenness that you and I face? Why the challenges and the, the, the insurmountable wounds that you and I have experienced? Why are things so hard and people so difficult? Why is it that we find ourselves in relational conflict with people that we love? Or we say that people that would say that they love us? Why is there fractures in marriages and families? Why is there disobedience in the lives of children? Why do our hearts wander and prone to do our own selfish activities? Why can we not get out of our own way? Why is life so hard? Paul is going to address that very question. He's going to do so from the standpoint of power. What has rule over us? The depth of the theological work that Paul's going to do in this chapter is not only significant and challenging, but I would suggest to you this morning that it's also life liberating. If we were able to grasp the intentionality and the purpose of what Paul is doing in these few verses, it helps us understand the scope of what's taking place in the world around us and helps us understand the scope of the work that the Lord is doing in us. Before we begin, let me just lay out for you what this Sunday is about. We think about Palm Sunday. We think about the understanding of Jesus's purposeful entrance into Jerusalem, right? We know now, looking back, that he's moving into Jerusalem because he's moving to die. His plan is the crucifixion. He, he is purposely moving into those, and he's communicated it numerous times to his disciples, but they have yet to fully internalize what's happening. So Palm Sunday usually is an act of celebration. They're singing, Lord, save us, as Jesus is moving in in this triumphant king. And the expectation is that he would now become that which would have authority to overthrow, overthrow an occupying force of Rome. And the Jews would now become uh, those that are back in the areas of prominence. They would, they would now feel like they were significant again after they've been oppressed for so long. There was a hope that Jesus was the answer. And he is. But not quite the answer that they were looking for. 
Because I think Palm Sunday even communicates what Paul is talking to us about in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, is that there's a sense in which all of the brokenness and all of the challenges that we see, that ultimately what he's saying is the power of death is at work in every broken aspect of all of our lives. Broken relationships, broken hopes, broken dreams, and even death is at work in misplaced expectations. That's Palm Sunday. (laughs) There's something underneath. There's a power that's at work underneath all of those things that, that God is wanting to communicate to us that there's liberty from. But let's let Paul speak for himself in these few verses, and I'm just gonna read the first couple for us and, and make some observations. Here's what he says in verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death has spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type um, of the one who was to come. So what, what Paul is saying here in the most clear and simplistic sense is that the world we live in, death reigns. There's a sense of power and work through the context of sin where death is at work in all of the aspects of our own human existence. And here's how we can even know that Paul is accurate in those things. So he moves us all the way back to Adam. And here he's talking about this perfect, pristine garden in Genesis 1 and 2. And then sin enters into the world in Genesis 3 before there's any law, before there's 10 commandments or anything. But what he is saying is that there was a clear communication to Adam and Eve about something that they should not do. Because that's the definition of sin, a defiance against the authority of God. That's sin in its essence. It's exactly what he's saying exists in Adam, that the decision that Adam and Eve made to eat from the fruit from which they were forbidden was a defiance against the very thing God told them not to do. And it comes in numerous different ways, a desire to be their own God, a desire that they feel like God is limiting their understanding of things, a a lack of trust, a lack of faith in the perfect will and provision of God. It comes from all of those places. In that moment, what Paul is telling the Roman church, and I would even suggest telling you and I here and now, is that that same desire, that same thing lives and breathes inside of us. I'll take it as far as to suggest had you and I been Adam, we would have done the same thing. We would have made that same decision because there's a sense in which we want to be our own God. We want to have authority and agency over our own life to make our own decisions and do what we think is right, do what we think is best for us. But what Paul is saying is even when you're in that moment, you don't have your own power to make your own decision. What's actually happening is death is reigning in your life. That there is a power over you that's influencing and over me, influencing those decisions. That whether it's selfishness or self-centeredness or pride or self-righteousness, whatever we want to put the label on, Paul uses the huge basket to say, all sin leads to death. 
that sin reigns and death reigns, that they're all working and exhibiting power over us, that the appetites that we feel for our own self-interest are because of the very thing that Adam and Eve felt in their own soul, that they knew better than God. Somehow, in some way, I think we've all felt that, that we sense that we are the <laughs> exception. We've got this figured out, and I'm, I'm no doubt you guys are exceptional people, but let me just tell you, you're not the exception. <laughs> Paul is universal in his statement that death reigns in all people. Every broken relationship, every sin that we face, every selfishness, challenge, pride, arrogance, fracture, wound, there is death reigning. Death reigning in misplaced expectations of God. Death reigning in fractured relationships with one another. Death reigning in the world. That's Paul's assessment. Death is at work in the world, and there's not one of us that would turn on the news for 22 seconds and say to ourselves, that's not true. Because we all know that it's true. But why is Paul so fixated on communicating it to a church in Rome? Because it's not just that death is reigning in the world around us, but there is still a sense that death is reigning and has work inside of us. We are not somehow in some way unable or, or able to, to get out of the reality of death's reach. Sin's reach is operating inside of us. So just pick one situation in your life, and I'll do the same for mine, and ask yourself, where is death reigning? Where is there a fracture in a relationship? Where are things not working the way that you think that they should? Where are you 100% aware that sin is having its way in the hearts and minds of those who you are living around and in your own heart? Where has sin contributed to the challenges of your relationship? So what he tells us is that death reigns. There's a... Uh, quote from T. Robinson that I'd like to share with you this morning. Here's what he communicates as he talks about sin. He said, sin entered as a foe into a city, a wolf into a fold, a plague into a house, as an enemy to destroy, a thief to rob, and a poison to infect. I think what Robinson is communicating is that every single one of us have felt the uh, pain of our own sin and the sin of others. It's a poison that's infected all of humanity. And that it's not just something that has happened, but there's an, a power that exists. There's a, a ruling and a reigning, an influence that it has over our lives. Here's the most subtle way that it shows up. I find it showing up in my own heart in the places where I justify my own behavior because the actions of another. <laughs> You know, those subtle shifts where it's okay for me to feel angry or act poorly towards someone I love because of how they've treated me. Wondered if somehow in some way I get to feel a small smidgen of self-righteousness because I, I feel just a little bit better than the person who hurt me. A little less need of the grace that they need because of they're maybe just a little more broken and me. See how subtle it is as death and sin influence themselves over each of our lives? 
that somehow in some way the gospel is sufficient for all things, but some people need it more than we do? <laughs> you see how insidious it is? That's why Paul is breaking down the significance of not just understanding God and the, the sense of human suffering and what we deal with and that God is working in all of those things, Romans 5, 1 through 11. But now he's telling us that as we look inside and find ourselves introspective, we have to use the Bible as a mirror and we have to remind ourselves that there is something at work inside of me that is causing the very problems and challenges that I face in my life. That death is reigning in broken relationships in the world around us and misplaced expectations and fears, failures, and anxiety. Death is at work. Here's what he tells us too as we move on in verses the next section. He's going to communicate to us that there's a unique shift that happens when we come to that awareness. And what I would like to maybe suggest to you this morning is not only that death reigns, but that you and I have committed Adam's sin a million times over. We haven't just done the thing or would have done the thing that Adam did, but we do the very thing that Adam did daily. Maybe you don't believe me. <laughs> That's okay. Let me just play it out the moments where you find yourself frustrated and knowing that the Lord is calling you to act and respond to those around you with words of love and grace and the truth of gospel rescue. And you say to yourself, nope, I'm not doing it. Then what you're saying is the very thing that Adam said. I know better than God. <laughs> I've got a, a better handle on the things that are going on in my life. And so I think I've got this one. Look at the brokenness around us and the sin that infests the lives of those people around us. And we say to ourselves, I, I wonder what God's going to do in them, but yet somehow in some way subtly feeling a little bit better about ourselves. It's the same thing that Adam played in the garden. Remember what he said when he ate the fruit and God showed up? What was his first excuse? This woman you gave me, <laughs> I just love that passage, it's so fantastic, because it's, it's just an indication of the human heart, right? Like, there are two people to blame. She's at fault, and ultimately, God, you're at fault. You gave her to me, and she did this. We want other people to be responsible for the sin in our own heart. I do it too. We say it in the context of marriage. If my wife was nicer, more kind, and more loving, I wouldn't feel what I feel. If somehow in some way the people around me, my friends, saw me for who I am and weren't so, so frustrated and mean and angry and had difficult times in their life, then I wouldn't feel the way that I feel. God, these people you gave me. God, this church you gave me. God, the people that I sit next to that you gave me. Consistent lines of excuses. And so what is Paul doing? Here's the question that I think he's fundamentally asking you and me. When did the excuses stop? and the redemptive work of Christ starts. What does it require? I think what Paul is doing in the church at Rome is asking them to lay it down. That the recognize not only does the power of death reign inside of them, but there's an aspect of, of something that he's doing that we are so desiring to hold on to that we don't wanna let go of. And so as difficult as those first few verses are, as they meet each and every one of our hearts, mine included, and I recognize where, at least in parts, death is reigning in my life. 
Look at what he says in verse 15. But, but. Verses 1, verses 12 through 14 are the diagnosis, but they're not the identity. They're the realizing of our condition, but they're not the absolute state of affairs where we find ourselves stuck. But. The free gift, he says, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. If you circle in your Bibles or in your journals um, that, that we have here in the Romans thing, circle those two words, but and much more. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass bought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through one man, much more, again circle, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Man, there's, a, there's an amen embedded in that reality of what Paul's communicating. That the sense of what he wants to give us is not just the scope of the power of death and the reality of how it is infected and affected every aspect of our life. There's not one person, one place, or one iota of one moment that has not been touched by death's power and sin's work. But... How much more the free gift of God's grace. Here's what he begins to communicate that not only have we committed Adam's sin a million times over, but that that doesn't have to remain our lot in life of those who are perpetually just self-interested, just looking to our own desires and our own thoughts and our own plans and our own attention. There's a, a free gift that has been offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And that free gift, that very word shows up five times just in this text. Here's what he wants you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to just get in the rhythm of. God is actively pursuing you with gracious, tender love. And it's free. Free. Like there's not something where he is expecting you to earn, pay, or work for. There is not this element of understanding or expectation that the God of the universe would offer you this gift. You open it in some way. You receive the joy of that gift. And then you're going to say to God, let me show you how much you made a good decision. <laughs> Thanks for saving me. Let me prove to you my value. Your value is given to you by Christ himself. It's free. Free. Five times over free to receive the goodness of God's grace in such a way that it becomes life-altering and life-transforming. Here's a quote that I'd like to share with you. Calvin says it this way, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam is to destroy. The, the reality of sin's power and the scope of death's reign in this world and over our lives pale in comparison to grace's power to transform. 
you are not stuck, and neither am I. Why? God, if there's anything that I would want you to hear this morning, it's two words that I think Romans 5, 11 through 21 absolutely reverberate to the core of who we are. Two words that I want you to walk away with and remind yourself with every day this week and the following. Two words that ultimately transform every interaction, every challenge, every brokenness, and even in the world around us. Two words, grace wins. Grace wins. Grace wins. Every time the power of the gospel is at work in such a way that we are not limited to the brokenness that we face, but we can move into those messy situations knowing that the power of Jesus Christ at work in and through us in such a way, grace wins. Wins over your own self-defeated view of who you are. Worries about the concerns about whether or not anything could ever change in the context of your life or in the world around us. Any concerns about whether or not there's any hope for the relationship that you struggle with most that's before you. What Paul would want the Roman church to know and to you and I to know this morning, grace wins. And that matters. Not just theoretically in the promise of eternity that God, that grace wins in the future, that the very reality of what we celebrate at Easter time, let's just fast track the story from Palm Sunday all the way through Holy Week, and think about it in human terms. The Jews had expectations that Jesus would become the ruler and king and unseat the Roman authority and occupation. Imagine The crucifixion led to some of their disappointment. Well, he must not be the Messiah. We got that wrong. The Pharisees and the leaders of the time, as Jesus moves in, and his first act is to unseat the temple. (laughs) He starts to turn over tables, communicate that this isn't a place where you can purchase things. My, My father's designed this to be a house of prayer, not a marketplace. You're starting to already see that somehow in some way, Maybe Jesus isn't who we thought he was going to be. The Romans thinking that he's just some crazy preacher that has some ability to have some charisma to generate some attention. But he'll go away. He won't last. All of those things as Jesus marches to Calvary. Every step he takes purposefully and planned from the foundations of the world by the God of the universe that somehow in some way, on Good Friday, when Jesus is crucified, there would be an expectation in that very moment, that snapshot in history, that not only does death reign, but death wins, right? Somehow they've achieved what they needed to achieve, buried in a borrowed tomb. Three days later, the tomb is empty, which we know, Jesus is risen from the dead. Why? Because death reigns, but grace wins. It's a story of the Christian church. It's the reality of the hope that we have inside of us. That it's not just the reality of the resurrection and the salvation that's been offered to us by God. It's the transforming knowledge that the very resurrection power that has saved us and made us no longer enemies of God, but part of his forever family 
is the same resurrection power that you and I need every day in every broken relationship and every challenge. Everything that we face when death reigns, we can be reminded that grace wins. That if we borrowing our life and setting our life on the truth of who Jesus is and the rescuing power of the gospel, there is always hope. Nothing is determined. God is always at work. D.A. Carson says it this way. There's no amount of suffering that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> 100%. That no matter what we face, the truth of what Paul is getting at this morning is that grace wins. Let me finish with these following verses as Paul concludes chapter five. Here's what he says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, so by one man's disobedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the significance of how Paul concludes his understanding of the universal scope of suffering and the reality that they see and we see death in front of us every day of the week and from from the world around us to the the lives we live to the relationships that you and I experience, there's a sense and a knowledge of the impact of sin and death in every corner of our lives. And yet, as he unfolds the reality of those things, he begins to continue to remind us that the power of grace is bigger than the power of death. That there is freedom and liberty that is offered to those who find faith and hope in Jesus Christ. The goal is not for us to figure out how to fix the relationships around us. Why? Because we'd fix them on our terms, right? We'd tweak and shift because we would want people to look in the version that we want them to look like rather than address and surrender that the transformation that takes place is the work that the gospel is doing inside of each of us. So what Paul would say is, let's take the most horrific, difficult places that you and I have experienced in our lives. And as we play it out and trust the transforming power of grace and really truly believing that grace wins, imagine the story and the testimony that the Lord is writing in those moments. That dark was really dark. Pain was real pain. It was chronic and overwhelming. It sought to consume every area in my life. But, but, Jesus worked in such a way that I was able to see his work and his hands and his tender care for my life in moments that I didn't even know that he was present. My story and your story is yet to be fully written. But you know what will be plastered and tattooed over each and every one of our stories? Every part of it for those of us who placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Grace wins. Shame doesn't have the final say. The very decisions that we've made that we regret, the very challenges that we face in every one of our lives. Death reigns, 
but grace wins. We finish with this quote. There's a book called True Face that I read not that long ago, and here's how he understands it or shares it with us. When grace introduces us to repentance, the two of us became best friends. When anything else introduces us to repentance, it feels like a warden has come to lock us up. But when grace gets involved, the truths of repentance reveal a fabulous world of life-freeing beauty. (laughs) Grace wins. We fully trust the work of God in each of our lives and that he has rulership and authority. We love him. He loves us. He knows what's best. And in his sovereign, tender care, he is working out and reminding us every day of the week, grace wins. Let's pray. Father, I am 100% confident in my own soul that there's part of my life that doesn't believe this. I want to. I want to know that in the hard moments of life and the darknesses that I face in my own journey, that you are working. But there are times, if I'm honest, I don't see it. And I grow frustrated that not only do I don't see it, but I'm unsure that it's actually happening. And so God, I pray that you would elevate my eyes to see the fullness of who you are the goodness of your kindness towards me. God, would you help me, save me, rescue me from myself that I might even be able to come to the conclusion that you are at work when I don't see it. Convince my heart that grace wins. Remind me of your goodness. And God, equip me to be that which lives my life for you. Because all I want is for all the world to know all the goodness of the God of the universe and to tell the story that the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares to the entire world, grace.